Welcome to the Ruby Name Podcast. I am, as always, Jordan. With me this evening is Chris. Yo. We are going to do two segments we've been meaning to do for a while now. One is more timely. The other is more exciting. Um, well, that's not really true. They're both exciting, I think. We're going to start <laughs> the show off by talking about the season finale of Game of Thrones. We've been meaning to talk about Game of Thrones for a while on the podcast. Things just kept precluding it. So now that the season's over, we're going to talk about the season finale specifically, what we liked and didn't like about the season as a whole, what we may or may not be looking forward to from the show to come. Uh, after that, we're going to talk about franchises in comics. We're going to talk about family titles, uh, books that seem to propagate more books with the name in them, uh, Batman books, X-Men books, Avengers books, why there are so many, what's good about that, what's bad about it, uh, what we like and don't like in those books right now. Uh, so we got a pretty packed show for today. Before we get started on those two things, though, I do want to make an addendum from last week. We finished up Movie Club, and I forgot to announce the pick for the next Movie Club, because I am apparently imperfect. Uh, this is news to me. It's a little bit upsetting, but um, not perfect. So we're going to rectify that, and Chris, you will have to react with surprise, because no one else is here to do it this evening with us. Um, so for the next Movie Club, which will happen in roughly three podcasts, or when I can get enough of you jokers to uh, watch it so we can talk about it, uh, it will be Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. Twist! There you I, go. Uh, that, was, that was some good surprise there. I've actually seen that, actually. Oh, <laughs> damn it. That's fun. All right, well, I haven't seen it. It's been on my to-do list forever, and I assumed no one else would have seen it, so... Well, I, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Jordan, is actually a big Jim Jarmusch fan and has been systematically making me watch every one of his films that's on Netflix every time we do movie night. I'm a big fan of his as well, and that's one of my holes. So I've what been was meaning... The, um, th there was a spy one uh, I recently watched. I forget the name now, but it was... a uh, Spy one. Let me think for a minute. Um, yeah. Huh. Oh, man. Hang but on. anyway, I'm while I'm, while I'm thinking, right I'll put this on the back burner. The reason I picked this one is, A, it's on Netflix Instant. B, I've been meaning to watch it for a while. And... Um, I feel like we've been sort of bouncing back and forth between uh, modern and classic, and I feel like this is kind of a, a medium walk between the two, um, in that it's about 20 years old now, so not exactly modern, but it's not as old as Tokyo Story, which was the last pick from, of mine. So I'm sort of batting it down the middle. Uh, you've already seen it, so you'll be our resident expert, expert when we talk about it, but hopefully... Uh, the others who will be in the conversation have not. Otherwise, it'll be a fail pick, and we can all uh, mock me for the entire segment. Yeah, I think I'll need to rewatch it before we uh, do our segment, because uh, it's, it's that kind of movie. Uh, the film I was thinking about a minute ago is The Limits of Control, which I think is also still on Netflix and Instant Q. And yes. if you like uh, Dead Man, I would also highly recommend The Limits of Control, because that was a, that was a very interesting film to watch. I think he makes just... Across the board, very, very interesting stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, he really Stranger does. Than Paradise is, is uh, excellent. Just a very different movie. Um, and Broken Flowers a... uh, was... It's sort of like... I think it sort of gets papered over as another Bill Murray playing uh, like yeah. old sad man. But it's a really, really great film. I also like Ghost Dog. Ghost Dog was pretty good, too. And I wasn't expecting to like that film. I was just, just going to mention, I haven't seen Ghost Dog. That's another one of his that I've been meaning to fill. It's a little um, bit more of a straightforward action movie, but it still very much has his style and that sort of uh, surrealist atmosphere he brings to his work. All right. So, so uh, within a couple weeks, if you are playing along at home with the Ruby Name Movie Club, check out Jim Jarmusch's Dead Man. It's on Watch Instant. You can also check out The Limits of Control. Um, I think a few others of his are on Watch Instant, though. I'd have to refresh and see if they're still there. 
Yeah. Uh, but go check out some of his movies, especially Dead Man. Chris, go rewatch it. The rest of you who are generally regulars on this podcast who are not here this evening, I'll tell you about it, but hopefully you're listening to this, and you can go watch it as well. In a couple weeks, we'll be talking about that. But for now, why don't we move on, and Chris, I'll kick over to you, and you can start with your thoughts on last night's Game of Thrones finale, and we'll move into the season as a whole. Why don't we start, and we'll do a, a bit of a spoiler-free last night's finale, and then we'll move into spoilers. Okay, um, I will start by saying that I very much I come from a place I have not read the books, so I'm going through the show experiencing it for the first time as the TV show, which I think is going to be a good dichotomy because Jordan, I know you've read the books. Um, yes. so um, we'll and when you. I say spo- we will get into spoilers, we will not spoil the books. Okay, good to know. Yeah, because um, I know you haven't read them. I know a lot of uh, our listeners and a lot of viewers have not read the books, and I feel like there are too many people out there spoil sporting for TV watchers with the books. So we will get into spoilers about what happened on the show last night. If we ever talk about anything in the books, it will stay as vague as possible, and there will not be spoilers. If I, uh, Yeah, there just won't be any spoilers, so don't worry about that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so uh, I liked the finale. I didn't love it for the same reason that I actually usually don't like uh, the finales of these seasons. I tend to think that the final episode of each season tends to be one of the weaker episodes of the season. But that being said, a weak episode of Game of Thrones is nothing to scoff at. It's only weak by comparison to the rest of to the show itself, not to a lot of what's on television. It's still much, much stronger than anything, uh, pretty much anything else it's up against these days, especially in the summer season. Um, the thing I don't like about uh, the finales is that, and this one was very much like that, but I think a little bit better than previous finales, definitely better than season two finale, was that the finale tends to be sort of a, um, let's check in with every single person who's still around and just show you where they've ended off this season and give you a tease of what's to come next season. So it almost ends up being like sort of just like five minutes here, five minutes there, five minutes there, and just like really quick snippet scenes that don't really amount to much other than just reminding you what you what their arc has been this season and maybe giving you a tease of what's to come um, which doesn't really make for very compelling television usually it's more just like an extended trailer to remind you to come back next summer as worst but you also still get a few really good moments so i would say that the finale for me was as i expected sort of a mixed bag but on the whole enjoyable yeah i i agree um i think and it, it, it seems weird to say this as much as I love Game of Thrones. Um, I think premieres and finales of this show are never very good episodes of the show. Like you said, it's it's comparing the show to itself more than anything else on TV. But both premieres and finales of the show tend to have a very, like, let's check in with everybody, let's see what everyone's doing. And the show is so vast and has so many characters, it's impossible to get into any depth when it does that. Uh, I understand why they feel the need to do these episodes, even though I... I don't think they actually do, and we can talk a little bit more about the way the show structures itself in a bit. Um, but the way they generally structure the seasons, it seems, is check-in premiere, you get billed for a while, something huge happens in episode 9, and then a check-in finale. Um, and I know a lot of people uh, I've been reading and, and talking to uh, seem to say the ending of this finale was weaker than the ending of season 1 or season 2. Uh in that you got the big, you know, Daenerys' dragons being born at the end of season one, uh, the big uh, White Walkers march at the end of season two, and this was sort of an, an anticlimax compared yeah. to those. And I, I see that, um, but I, I think this might have been the strongest of the finales as a whole episode. Um, it had the same problems as the other ones, but 
maybe because we're further along in the story and we know these characters a little bit better, I feel like even the smaller snippets, we got a little bit more, at least from the characters that I think uh, really had great episodes. Um, and since you've already said a lot of what I said and I'm kind of reiterating you, I'll point out a few things that I think were done really well in the finale. I would say most explicitly the Stannis and Davos stuff was really great. Um, well, they they almost got a, I feel like, more of a actual, if anybody actually got sort of in-depth and was a focus of this episode, I would say it was Stannis and Davos. Right, and I think the time spent there was really good and you really felt it. Um, yeah. Whereas, in fact, that may be the only one that I think I really felt the impact. Uh, everything else felt a little scattered. I think another big moment that landed for me, and I, I want to know how it landed for you, it literally is just a moment, which is Jamie's rearrival in King's Landing. Oh, uh, that was actually the scenes, one of the scenes that really didn't work for me because um, it was basically just the bare minimum they could give. Uh, I, I actually wanted to see like that moment with, I wanted to see like him and Brienne on the road, maybe talking a little bit about what they which had just gone through and what they were going to expect once they got to King's Landing, maybe seeing a little bit of this newfound relationship that like a mutual respect that was developing between them. I wanted to actually see the reunion with Cersei more than just the meaningful glance. I wanted to see the conversation that comes next, the, maybe not like just the rehash of what happened, but I just a few minutes later of after that's been told, like them checking in where they are. I, I wanted to see those things. I, I just, it wasn't enough for me to just see him arrive. I, I think that we knew that was going to happen. And it was almost just like a tease to just give you that without showing you anything more that happens in those scenes. Oh, I, I, I thought it was very much a very disappointing to not get more depth to those scenes because I was really looking forward to that all season. I agree that it's uh, very much a tease, but I think a lot of what the, this finale was doing that I sort of liked and was sort of annoyed with um, was just saying, like, hey, this is going to be a thing next year, da-da-da. And um, for me, at least, uh, I don't know if this is something to do with ha me having read the books, and obviously, like I said, I won't comment, but for me, at least, the Jamie's back, like, what the fuck is this going to look like now uh, is a moment we've been waiting for forever. And it's one of those finale things. Like, that could have been the last moment of the finale, and for me it would have been like, oh, right, this is a huge thing that's going to happen next year. Because you've, see, you've seen Jamie and Cersei together in season one, but Jamie's been gone from, from his family, you know, for a season and a half now. And he's changed hugely during that time. Well, no, really two seasons and a half now, I guess. Like, two seasons and a couple episodes. Yeah. And he's had a huge arc over that uh, period where he's changed completely. Um, so I think... Seeing how he'll interact with these people that he hasn't seen in a long time, and seeing how they'll interact with him, A, without his hand, and having lost the thing that they all loved him for, being this great gallant sword fighter, and B, just having sort of changed his outlook on life. Um, I think that's something that needs a lot of time to play out, and I imagine that's something that the show is going to deal with in season four. Um, and I think it's better to say, like, this is going to be a thing, and deal with it in season four, than to rush through, like, Jamie and Cersei's first conversation. I'd rather that be, you know, like a a 10, 15 minute long story point in a future episode than, than try to cram it into it the probably five minutes they were going to give it now. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I just really wanted something there. It just, ah, uh, it was, it was very frustrating for me. So, uh, you agree with me on the Stannis thing. What are other things you really liked about the episode? Um, I liked, uh, Arya's bit. I thought that was probably one of the most badass sequences in the entire episode. Um, the beginning of the episode was suitably shocking. The visuals there um, were just really 
very grand for the show and as it needed to be um, with Rob's army being slaughtered. Um, I thought that that was just uh, handled very well. And, and that's something the show's had a little bit of a problem in the past was dealing with those large crowd shots and like trying to show the scope of the amount of characters that might be involved in a particular event. So I thought that scene worked very well, the way they shot that. Um, I liked... Um, what else did I like? I, I like the Tyrion and Sansa scenes. I thought that you're, they have a good handle on their dynamic. I'm starting to really enjoy their interplay. Um, yeah, they have a, a surprisingly good chemistry that I wasn't really particularly prepared for. I mean, I think both of them, especially Peter Dinklage, do do good work. And Peter Dinklage is, I think, giving one of the best performances on television when the show lets him. Um, but I didn't necessarily expect he and Sophie Turner to have quite the interplay that they seem to. Yeah. No, they they have a they have a very, um, they have a very natural chemistry that almost uh, makes you forget that they really haven't shared that much time on screen before now before this season. It almost may, you almost feel like that this is just their latest in a whole long running series of scene, but it's only been very recently that they've started to throw these two together as much as they have. Um, I also liked uh, the small council chamber scene. I I've been waiting for. A long, long time to have the intensity of Tywin meet the um, just out of control, spoiled child that is Joffrey, and it, it that scene did not disappoint at all. I um, think, um, and I we'll talk about highlights of the season as a whole sure. in, in a few minutes. But I think anytime you get the Lannisters together, and especially anytime they're in the small council meetings, it's just like pure gold. Yeah. Um, no pun intended, but you know that being their color and them having lots of gold. <laughs> but it's just amazing stuff when you have Lena Headey, Peter Dinklage, and Charles Dance yeah. uh, all together. And I mean, throw Joffrey into the mix, and it's just, it's, I could have watched that for an hour, you know? Oh, totally. Um, and um, I think I think Charles Dance gives so much to Tywin, and he's made he makes him such a complex, compelling character that it's so easy to hate and love him at the same time in ways that, that it's really hard to pull off, I think. So kudos needs to go to him for last night and really for the entire series. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just a masterful performance. Uh, like, I think overall there were a lot of there were a lot of moments from the show from the finale that I really liked, and there were a lot of moments that really bored me, which is I think very indicative. I mean, this is a show that's always had a problem with like episode to episode. There never really is an actual through line to the episode. There's never really a connected theme. Which I think is, you can't really fault the show for because uh, there's just so many moving pieces to it. It's very hard to have that kind of thematic consistency from episode to episode. Everything is like very plot driven. Everything is just trying to like move this story forward. And you get those great character beats along with that. But it's hard to find like an overarching theme to an individual episode. As you can still maintain the themes that the show itself is about. But like individual episodes don't really have that same um thematic consistency I but think, i think oh. that is even more evident in um the finales like we've been saying so what it really comes down to is these quick little character moments and some of them are going to be great and some of them are just going to be kind of boring and in the end i think we have more great ones than we usually do in this episode but at the same time it still is suffering from the same problem that i think the finales are always going to suffer from for this show um i think yeah i think as long unless they make drastic structural changes to the show which i cannot foresee 
we're always going to have this type of finale, and it will always be sort of a letdown, especially so long as they keep using episode nine to drop bombshells like last week's Red Wedding. Um, yeah. But I think one of the things that Game of Thrones doing that's, uh, is doing that's very interesting that is not always successful is I think this is really is like a novel on television in that it doesn't really break things up into episodic chunks the way that you see most TV shows do. Um, you know, even on something like, the example that always comes to my mind, even on something like Breaking Bad, which is usually pretty uh, season and series driven in terms of arc, you usually have every episode saying like, Walter needs to like get this thing or do this thing or avoid that. And that's what happens in those 45 minutes, even as it is a smaller piece of a larger puzzle. And that's, I think, usually how serialized dramas are built. Game of Thrones is more like, well, we got a whole bunch of story to give you, so here's a chunk. Like, yeah. we're going to give you 10 episodes of story that amount to roughly a novel, or in the case of this last season, roughly, I think, two-thirds of a novel, as memory serves. Um, we're going to give you as much as we can give you in that space, but... Basically, the way the episodes are going to break down is we only have 60 minutes. Here's where we can fit into 60 minutes. Um, and that does, I think, weaken the show on a week-to-week -week basis, especially in episodes like these where it's more broken up. Because um, shows like... Uh, I've already used Breaking Bad. So shows like Mad Men, while, while they do have the longer series arcs and, and uh, season character arcs, can do an episode that's like, this is the theme. For example, this week's Mad Men, the theme was Favors, which... Uh, the episode was aptly called. Yeah. Um, and it can really dig deep into that, and it can play that theme out across various characters and a bunch of different permutations. Uh, and that's just an advantage Game of Thrones doesn't have when it's trying to tell a story uh, on two continents and, you know, various different locales, hundreds and even thousands of miles apart from each other. Um, it's too, It's got too many characters and it's got too many locations and too much plot to really get into the... Uh, thematic depth in any given episode so it sort of has to rely on the character beats when they come and the sweep of the entire narrative to carry its theme yeah i mean it, i couldn't have said it better it's and it's not really a problem i have with the show um and I, again i don't think it's really something that i really notice a lot or take issue with until it comes for the finale and the premieres um but like I said, I think they I think they are learning because I did enjoy this finale more than I enjoyed season two by most. And I even really take that much like the, the idea of the last scene being very anticlimactic. Like I, I didn't mind that. I was fine with it. Um, I think the Red Wedding was such a huge shock for this season and so much more shocking than anything that had come before, even um, the its counterpart in season one that I didn't need the uh, season to end on a big cliffhanger because I already had already gotten that the episode before. So um, I think we can talk about the Red Wedding and the ramifications now. Uh, if you have not seen the series yet uh, or this or the episodes, you know, the season, um, you want to skip maybe two or three minutes ahead, uh, maybe slightly longer. We're going to talk about uh, some things that happened this season that you should not know about if you haven't seen the show. Um, so why don't we dive right in and Chris... As someone who's watching the TV show and this is your first time through, what do you think of The Red Wedding? What do you think of the story ramifications as a whole? Uh, just go ahead and feel at me for a minute. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. That was rough. It was really, really rough. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, I knew it was coming. Um, uh, you'd been spoiled on it? 
I, I, yeah, I have been spoiled on it um, by a bastard mutual acquaintance of ours. Yeah, that's, that's, and that, that's why, like, as, as someone who's read the books, I am so careful. I, I don't even like to talk about uh, the way that the arcs have differed on the TV show from the book. For example, I, I think I've mentioned to you without any detail that Arya's arc is, is different in some ways that I think are significant in the book than from the show. Uh, yeah. I don't even like to talk about how, because who knows how it's going to play out in the show in the future, and you never know when they might throw something in. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really annoying, especially for something as monumental and as crushing as the Red Wedding. And since we're in spoilerville now, I can say the death of Rob Stark and the death of Catelyn Stark. It's, yeah. And uh, Talisa as well, who um, this is this is uh, a weird thing. So I think I can go ahead and spoil this from the books. Her character is very different, and she does not die at the Red Wedding in the books. So that's that that is a change that. Uh, didn't really surprise me because the character doesn't go on to do anything, so it's not a spoiler for me to say she doesn't die. Um, but it was a change, and I think an affecting one. Absolutely, especially in like just how brutally she was killed. I mean, they stabbed her in the stomach first, and she's pregnant with Rob's child. So that I mean, that was an especially brutal scene in a sequence of extremely brutal scenes. So. Um, I mean, they really did not let up on the brutality for any of that. It was it was hard to watch. It was really, really hard to watch. And I, I think, I, I mean, I, I think it was going to be under any circumstances. I think, um, I think for a lot of fans who hadn't read the books, me especially, Rob had become a favorite. Um, it was really enjoyable to watch his arc to see him like take up arms to try and rescue his father and then be honored as the King of the North and to just be um, frustrating the Lannisters at every end for just how like um, resolute and tactically brilliant he was in taking this smaller army and just really just wiping the countryside with the Lannisters at every turn. So, um, I mean, I really liked Rob. I think he was this, um, he was just like a badass righteous dude who was just going across the countryside with his wolf and his army just killing all the people that you wanted to see killed and so to like have that removed from the show it um it really just it is hard when they take away one of the characters that you really find it very easy to root for and i i think rob was a protagonist who i mean that kind of person who's just that righteous and that um, much of a good guy can often be kind of boring, but I didn't really see that with Rob. Like I, I, I really liked the arc of like the burden of leadership fall, falling on him, and um, just being this young guy who had to like fill his father's footsteps and at the same time. This tension that's going on with his mother sort of betraying him. So I was really enjoying that arc. I was really enjoying that story, and to have it cut short so abruptly, um, and then just this whole entire facet of the show wiped off the board and the fact of if i'm to understand things correctly rob's army is basically gone correct yeah uh the the army from the north has pretty much been wiped out okay uh, yeah so that that's pretty much the the active rebellion of the north at least from my perspective is sort of over and that was a huge facet of the show ever since i began watching so it's it's a huge status quo change in a show that is uh, no stranger to status quo changes, so it was very, it was very surprised. I mean, like I again, I knew the death was coming, but it was, it was still surprising nonetheless. Well, um, I think, I think but, but at the same, but at Go the same ahead. time, it's like in addition to the fact that it was spoiled that I knew it was coming. Like I, I could also, I just knew that Rob was not going to last very long in this kind of an environment. Like what, what I've gotten from 
what I've seen in George R. R. Martin's storytelling is that the characters he's interested in and his focus points in this world are those characters that come for, for the intents and purposes of this world that come from a station where they are at a disadvantage. And that was not Rob. Rob was born into privilege. He was a great fighter. He was noble born. He was good looking. He was um, just, he had moral fiber. So Rob was not ever going to be a character that I saw Martin wanting to play with for an extended period of time. So I knew he was not, he was going to be taken off the board at some point. I just didn't expect it to be in such a brutal and um, I guess demoralizing fashion. I mean, you always hope if a character you love dies, they get to die doing something cool. So it was just kind of that. I think that was the, that was the kick while you're down to have it be. And just like, he's just kind of stabbed in the shot in the back and then stabbed in the stomach. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to say, I think what the show, I think really underlined well, uh, and it's true of the book as well, obviously, but is the, the red wedding is, cuts an entire plotline out of the uh, out of the show or out of the story just like that, you know, in yeah. an instant. It's, you used to have, you know, it's a very sprawling story with a ton of major storylines in it, but Rob's campaign is a major storyline in, in uh, the series to date, and it is done. Every major character in it is dead, uh, with the exception of the Blackfish, who I guess hasn't really been major on, on the show, I don't think. Uh, do you have strong feelings about the Blackfish at this point? I liked him. He was pretty cool, but... Nothing yeah, so that. I mean, he's alive, but yeah. virtually every other character uh, that you know from this plotline is just like dead and gone and no longer going to matter. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's, yeah, I think demoralizing, like you said, is the word. Um, and I think Martin loves to do this sort of thing where he, he sets up your standard fantasy hero and then says, that's not the way it works in the real world. That's not the way it's going to work here. And he loves to tear down... Uh, people who are sort of quote unquote good. Um, I think, I, I think the larger theme that, that he gets at with this again and again, uh, as it's happened is like the people who are just, uh, as good, good the way that Ned and Rob Hafton are, you know, very honor bound and not necessarily willing to play the game that actual ruling requires playing. Um, and I think that maybe the main question, or at least one of the major questions of game of Thrones and a song of ice and fire is, who is fit to rule? Uh, what does it take to be a good leader? And I think Martin keeps coming back to this idea that it's more than just honor. Like, honor is good. Honor is something you can you should have, obviously. And we don't like the characters who lack honor. But you can't just be honorable to a fault. Um, and I think that's what felt Ned. And though though the books do a better job with it than the show, I think that's also what fells Rob. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think that's interesting. And yeah, I mean, uh, the Red Wedding is heart-wrenching. And I have to say, I think she actually gets a lot of flack and not nearly enough credit. I think Michelle Fairley was excellent as Caitlin, uh, Catelyn rather, um, just knocked it out of the park several times this season. Uh, her monologue about hating Jon Snow earlier in the season was like a, an episode stopper for me. And she played the, her final scene in the Red Wedding so well. Just the anguish and and the desperation uh, of her character was like heart stopping again. So I really, I mean, Girl deserves an Emmy nomination. She was amazing. Uh, I think throughout the season, but especially in her final episode. And I think um, she's a character, and Michelle Fairley is an actress 
is someone who does not get as much credit as she deserves in the show. Oh, absolutely. I, in fact, I was shocked at, like like I said, I'd been expecting Rob's death, but Catelyn's death came out of nowhere for me because it had always seemed like there was just so much more to her arc to come that I the entire time that that scene was going down, no matter how hopeless it looked for her, I like right up until the point where her throat was slit, I was expecting her to live through the experience just because she had always just seemed like such a vital and integral part to the show. And I mean, even for the past couple of seasons, like, like, yeah, she had been given so much great character work to do, but at the same time, it like, it seemed like her arc was kind of spinning its wheels, like waiting to like rev up again. So I was so surprised to see her taken off the board. And I, I am sad to see her go because as you say, it's just been a masterful performance from her. And really from what I understand, took a character who is never a fan favorite from the books and really, was always one of my favorites um, in the I show. Think, I think Catelyn gets a bad rap across the board. I think she's gotten a bad rap from book fans, um, and I think a lot of people I know that watch the show, and even uh, critics that I read, are never a big fan of hers. I think I think she's one of the more complex characters uh, on the show, and I and I think that people just tend to undervalue the fact uh, the fact of her position in the world. I think. George R. R. Martin and uh, Game of Thrones, uh, you know, the series and the books both do a good job of showing a lot of uh, modern, strong, feminine characters. Uh, yeah. Daenerys is obviously the most prominent example. But I think that Catelyn is one of the characters that fits in the time period of the world very well and that she's a wife and mother who has never been part of war plans and has never been part of strategizing and has just been, you know, being a lady and raising her children and basically over the course of her arc loses literally everything, um, you know, she loses, she's separated from her children, she loses her husband, she thinks, uh, as far as she knows, Bran and Rickon are dead, um, she doesn't think she'll ever be able uh, to see Sansa and Arya again, she's not even sure if they're still alive, and then she sees Rob killed in front of her, and she just, she just tries to change and evolve, and I think is actually fairly successful um, at figuring out some of the mistakes she makes along the way, and I think that fans of both the books and the series give her a lot of shit for the mistakes she makes, but to me, they are always they always make perfect sense. Like people are always angry at her for letting Jamie go, and from a strategic perspective, that's a terrible idea. But from an I want my daughter's back perspective, I completely see why she would do that. Yeah. Um, and I don't think she's as dumb as people play her off as. And I don't think that uh, I think she's a great character, and I think that uh, her arc makes a lot of sense. And I think what's so tragic about the Red Wedding, in addition to Rob, who is you know the great hope of the North, and really. Um, for me at least, and I don't know about you, but for me it was the favorite for me to want to win uh, the Game of Thrones, as it were, or to take the throne. Um, that's sad to see him struck down, but Catelyn, for me, it's like she just, she loses and loses and loses, and you think, well, her character arc has to be eventually, uh, she starts to gain again, and she starts to figure out what she's doing and, and grow and, you know, sort of find a new purpose in life and develop, but no, she loses and loses and loses until she has nothing left to lose, and then she dies. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a very tragic and it's a very dark ending. But bleak, I think that's what it, yeah. I think that's one of the strengths of this show and one of the strengths of Martin's writing in general is that no character is safe. It's a very unsettling show to watch because it doesn't even conform to the rules of narrative structure, and it's not predictable in the sense of, well, this is happening. Um, they're obviously working up to something here, so this character is probably safe. Like, I think the Red Wedding proved, if anything, that not even that is true, that anything can be wiped off the board at any time, and death can be meaningless, and it just can be shocking and unpredictable, and I think that's 
part of what makes The Red Wedding so hard to watch, but also part of what makes this show so much fun to watch. And I think Martin does a very good job uh, throughout the narrative of killing off minor characters and major characters with basically the same flick of his wrist. You know, um, yeah. I think he treats equally like every death, which one of the themes of the episode, I think, uh, was that each life matters and you can't necessarily weigh one life against, you know, even thousands of lives and say, well, the utilitarian calculus says we kill Gendry, for example. Um, uh, and I think like that was one of the things that I took away from the episode and I think is taken away from the series as a whole is highborn, lowborn, a king, a peasant, like, Every life matters, and ultimately, at the end, everyone can be killed, and everyone can be killed in equally horrible ways, you know? The yeah. heroes don't always get glorious deaths, the villains don't always get horrible deaths. Um, and I think that's that's uh, one thing that the show does very well. Um, the one thing that I, you know, I, and I think it's a very minor complaint, but I, I feel like where the books never prime you, at this point you kind of know that something major is going to happen in the ninth episode of every season. Yeah, um, I, I I agree with that. That that's becoming sort of a unfortunately predictable pattern. And maybe um, they'll maybe they'll now use that to play with us next season. You never know. I, I I would I would hope they would do that and maybe even save something big for the finale instead, sort of make that a little more satisfying than the night than they have been in the past. I think that would be a nice transition to the format and equally keep you guessing, keep you on the edge of your seat and shifting, not really knowing when the floor is going to drop out from under you again. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll say, obviously, uh, fans of the show probably know that the third book has been broken up uh, into seasons three and four. Um, so, you know, in the book, The Red Wedding takes place it's, I, before the two-thirds point. It's like a little over halfway through the book, I would say. Um, and, and so it's like it comes even more out of nowhere because it's like nothing can happen to Rob and Catelyn now. There's like 700 pages left in this book. Um, and I think that... that the way that Martin plays with those rhythms and the way he inverts climaxes and throws things that you wouldn't expect to happen now at completely uh, strange points in the narrative really messes with your head when you're reading the books in a way that I would like to see the show do a little bit better in future seasons. Um, that being said, I think, like, a lot, I've seen a lot of complaints, and again, I won't say anything about what hasn't happened yet, et cetera, et cetera. I've seen a lot of complaints about the fact that I think this season did take us about two-thirds of the way through uh, Storm of Swords and a lot of people freaking out about, um, you know, well, will there be enough for, for next season? And I feel, I don't, well, I'm not worried about that. Uh, obviously, they could screw it up, but I think the last bit of Storm of Swords is just packed, and I think that they're probably spacing it out wisely to be able to mine all that for what it's worth. Um, before we move on, do we want to talk about anything else about the season as a whole uh, or general thoughts? Uh, sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to talk about this season all night. Like, I, I think that it was, uh, I, I think, well, just as a general thought, I, I think that they really solved a lot of the pacing problems that had really plagued and uh, brought season two to a sort of frustratingly grinding halt at some point. Um, I thought the season moved forward at a much better clip. I thought they did a better job of sidelining certain characters for entire episodes to let other scene, to let scenes of the characters who were important to an episode breathe more. Um, I I never felt like, well, rarely would feel like certain characters were overstaying their welcome in certain episodes. And when they did take a character off the board for a few episodes, I didn't really miss them because when they came back around, their episodes were all the more satisfying for 
dividing their time up between the limited time they had that much better this season. Did you feel that way as well, or do you I agree. I think part of part of that, um, and I think I might have said this on the podcast before when we talked about Game of Thrones, is I think a Clash of Kings, uh, the second book which made the second season, is the weakest in the series. Uh, a lot of people disagree with me, but we can talk about that in a couple seasons. Um, I think it's the weakest book in the series. I think it's long, and not a whole lot happens in it. Um, and I think that contributed to a lot of the drag in season two. The second book is a lot of peace moving, um, and the second season was a lot of peace moving. Second season was also stuff with the writers trying to expand storylines that weren't there. Uh, Daenerys has a smaller role in the second book, and so you got the whole My Dragons storyline in season two that didn't work for me. Um, I think season three is the advantage of being, I would say, based on the best book in the series. Um, and there's a whole lot going on there for everyone. And so it wasn't hard to find story for everybody. But I do think they have gotten slightly better. Not a lot better. Maybe not as much as you think they've gotten better. But slightly better at the pacing um, and at letting characters breathe. I will say, uh, I'm going to ask you in a second, so start thinking about it, about your favorite and the least favorite thing about the season. Um, my least favorite... Generally a, or specifically? Uh, either is fine. Um, okay. Mine is kind of a specific least favorite. In a cakewalk uh, is the Theon storyline. Which... Um, Again, does I don't think it spoils to say isn't in the third book because Theon doesn't appear uh, for a long stretch in the third book. Um, in fact, at all in the third book. But it just it was a storyline that had one beat, and we got it, and then we got it again for five or six more episodes. And I think before the show will ever solve its pacing problem completely, it needs to realize that they can take characters, even as major as Theon, off the board for a long stretch and we'll figure it out. And what's confusing to me is they had no problem reintroducing us to Balin and uh, Yara, as she's called in the show, Greyjoy last night, and dropping us right back into their storyline and saying this is what they've been up to and this is what Yara's going to go do now, even though we haven't seen them all season. I think, I think there's an impact to taking a character off the board for a while, like you said, and then a couple episodes later, or even a season later, being like, here's where they've been. I think the show needs to trust us a little bit more to figure out uh, that characters will come back or won't come back and to remember who people are. Because I think this, I think the Theon story would be equally effective if we had seen the first, you know, two, maybe three episodes of it. Probably just two. I think if we'd seen Theon escape, think he'd escaped, uh, and be recaptured and beginning to be tortured again, that would have been enough and I wouldn't have needed to see some things that will haunt my memories forever. So... We'll do your least favorite, and then we'll figure out our favorites. What was your least favorite thing about the season? You stole my least favorite. <laughs> uh, um, I was worried that would happen. I, um... I don't know. Um, yeah, no, that was that was a big one for me, was the Theon stuff. I, I really just got... I, I didn't need to see it after a while. I, I agree with everything you just said about that. Um... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, yeah. it, it's telling that we agree because, uh, to me, that was like a marked low point where where I thought the Daenerys storyline didn't work last season. I thought it didn't work in the way a lot of the show wasn't working for stretches of season two. Um, I think season three worked very well with the exception of that storyline, pretty much exclusively. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, like, it made it stick out even more because every week, pretty much every week, it was like, Ugh, here's Theon. We have to watch something horrible that I never want to see on television ever happen <laughs> to him again. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I can't really pick anything out that I disliked as much as that. I think that was definitely, like, by a landslide, the low point of the season. All right, so. well, then we'll stick with you, and you can jump right into your favorite thing about the season. Um, hmm. Also tough. Because uh, <laughs> I think there was a lot to like about this season. Um... You know, any and, or even how about just even your favorite storyline? Uh, Jamie's storyline, I think, would probably be my favorite storyline from the season because uh, it just it just took a character that I thought was completely irredeemable and made him one of the most to me one of the most interesting characters this season. So I was I was always looking forward to the Jamie scenes. I always wanted to see more of his and Brienne's strange road trip across Westeros and all the shenanigans they would get into. Um, yeah, I, I really like Jamie's arc this season. I thought it was really well handled, uh, brilliantly acted. Some great monologues came out of it um, and just always kind of a joy to watch. So yeah, I think Jamie's arc definitely is my favorite part of the season. Yeah, I, I, the thing I was going to uh, select as maybe my single favorite thing was the Kingslayer monologue in the bath. Uh, that's just, I mean... To me, I, 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 I think I might have said this before in the podcast as well, but I think uh, season one of the show and the first book is sort of a Daenerys arc, if you think about like the big sweep of what happens to the characters and yeah. how they change and grow. I think season two isn't as effective as the book is, is at this, but I think season two is sort of a Tyrion arc uh, and showing what happens when he gets into power um, and the ways he changes as a result of those responsibilities. I think season three is a Jaime arc. Um, I think the big storyline that stands out to me from season three and the big character arc that I, that I will remember from season three going forward. And I think has made the biggest impact is watching Jamie change uh, from sort of the, the smart ass, badass who you kind of loves to hate uh, in season one into someone who's been humbled, someone whose motivations are clearer and, and even changing as he evolves. Um, I think a much, darker and more complex character as a result uh and a character that's much more interesting and the performance has absolutely matched uh this i mean i mean i imagine this is what you wait for as an actor is an arc like this but it's been knocked out of the park across the board absolutely yeah just a joy to watch all right so um before we we'll move on basically now but if you had to rank the game of thrones seasons right now where would season three rank um You know, I, I think this might be my favorite season to date. I, I, I would have to go back and rewatch season one because it's definitely between season one and season three for which is my favorite. But uh, as much as I hated it, The Red Wedding is just such a powerful moment and just such a divergence from what I usually expect to see on television that I think The Red Wedding itself might set the seasonal par above season one. Yeah, um, I think, uh, again, I have sort of a, a special place in my heart for season one, and I always think back of it as the golden standard. Um, so I'd have to rewatch season one. But I think season three is very close if it doesn't top it. Um, this is definitely a return to form after I particularly thought season two was fairly weak. Though, like I say, I give the show credit because it was adapting a weak book. But um, definitely a return to form, definitely a return to being one of the best shows on TV, I think. Um, so we love Game of Thrones. If you don't watch the show, you should check it out. Although you should probably not have been listening to the last five or 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> if you do watch the show, 
keep watching. Um, we will obviously talk about Game of Thrones when it returns next spring, I imagine. Um, if we don't talk about the premiere, we'll certainly be talking about season four as it moves forward. For now, why don't we move on, Chris, and why don't you take us into talking about uh, various family franchises and comics. Okay, so this is something I've wanted to talk about for a while, but wasn't really quite sure how to articulate what it was that I was I wanted to discuss with this topic. Um, I, I almost did a modest proposal on this a while back, but it was just something that was still like I was still trying to get my thoughts together on what I really wanted to say about this. Sure. But the so about a week ago, uh, Marvel announced that uh, spinning out of their big summer event, which is going to be called Infinity, is going to be a new Avengers series called Mighty Avengers. Uh, the idea being that uh, the, the Infinity event will roughly follow the main team of Avengers leaving Earth to um, confront an enemy that they've been facing pretty much since Jonathan Hickman took over uh, the flagship title of the franchise, Avengers. And uh, while the Earth is unguarded, uh, Thanos, a character who uh, fans of the Avengers movie are at least some point familiar with, uh, attacks the Earth, and Luke Cage has to bring together a new team of Avengers to sort of be the, the fill-in Avengers while um, the main team is away, and this is going to lead to a new ongoing series called Mighty Avengers. Um, and this kind of follows on the heels of uh, Marvel announcing that after uh, their spring event, Age of Ultron, ends, there's going to be an Avengers, a new Avengers title launching called Avengers AI, and... Uh, which I think brings our total of Avengers books up to about eight or nine books at this point. Um, and it really got me thinking about the idea of um, families of titles and franchises. And what I mean by that is, so you can sort of divide different groups of books by different like families. So like all the Avengers titles, you can lump into one group. And with that goes like, of course, the titles that have Avengers in the name, but also like Captain America, Iron Man, Thor... For the X-Men, you have any book that basically starts with an X. Batman, any book that basically starts with Bat. But what I pre what I specifically want to focus on for what I want to talk about here is the idea of like books that focus on um, the 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 core of the franchise itself. So you, where we're at a time right now where we have about five different books starring Batman, we have four different books about that are the core the, called the x-men in one shape or another and a ton of different avengers titles um and it what it what got me thinking was this idea of um this is a medium that relies on just small changes to stories that can eventually be reset because these stories really have no end. These have been running since basically the 60s, if not earlier, and they're just going to keep going and going and building and building. And we're in an unprecedented age right now where you have, um, like, say for the Avengers, five or six different Avengers narratives happening at the same time. So whereas before you would have, like, one core Avengers series, now you have maybe have, like, five or six core Avengers stories all telling different narratives at the same time. So while it really gives the reader a unprecedented time of choice where they can pick and choose the Avengers niche book most right for them, 
at the same time, are you also maybe doing some damage to the longevity of the franchises by simultaneously running out multiple uh, storylines, multiple directions you could have taken these titles for years and years and years? And I'm not sure I've quite articulated this as concisely and um, plainly as I wanted to, but... Uh, I think Jordan, it's a difficult are, point, but I understand yeah. what you're saying, yeah. Okay. Um, if you can maybe simplify it a little bit better for me, I'd... That might be good, sure. But... So, I mean, I think I think the point is valid, um, and I'll sort of respond after I yeah. hopefully say what you're saying. Um, yeah. Which is, if if you're gonna run, say, the Avengers forever, like as I assume Marvel's plan is, Avengers will be a book until the sun burns out and the Earth is destroyed. Um, yes. And should humanity survive, Avengers will still be a book in the eyes of Marvel, at least. Um, why create five different bifurcated narratives? that are really burning out potential stories five times as fast now, right? Exactly, yes. Exactly what I'm saying. Um, I think that's... I think it's an interesting question. My answer is I don't think... It, it, uh, I'm worried about the longevity of any of these titles uh, simply because I feel like every story is an Avengers story to a certain extent, and that's true, I think, of most comics. Um, I think you can... There are... There are endless permutations to these characters, which is why they've gone on, you know, Batman since the 30s, the Avengers since the 60s, um, the X-Men since the 60s. Uh, these books go on for decade after decade because really there are endless permutations for what you can do with the characters. Um, as long as you're playing with the same core themes, uh, and, you know, Avengers, I think even the themes can sort of change over time. But with X-Men, you have to deal with the, the core theme of these outsiders and are they human? Uh, are they monsters? Uh, how will humanity respond to them? Humanity might hate and fear them. How will they respond to that hate, hatred and fear? Uh, this, this sort of theme can be played out, I think, in endless permutations, and I feel like as long as there is bigotry and racism and hatred of any sort, the X-Men will have stories to tell. And I don't imagine that, the, that those things are going away anytime soon, unfortunately. So I imagine that the X-Men will be healthy. Um, now, I, I, I see what you're saying about potential premises especially, um, and the one that comes immediately to mind, I think we spoke briefly earlier, about X-Men, the new X-Men number one by Brian Wood, which yeah. is, uh, the gimmick behind it uh, is that it's an all-female X-Men team, though the book, I think, does not play that up and doesn't make it a big deal just the way it should. It's just an X-Men team that's come together. Um, sure. But I think those sorts of gimmicks are also endlessly recyclable. Um I think uh, Mighty Avengers is also, I, I was reading the story you sent me earlier today that announced that, uh, which is going to be an Avengers team that is mostly Avengers of color. Um, and also, I think they're trying to do more than half women. So it's going to be a very diverse Avengers team that's dedicated to diversity. But you can do that now. If Mighty Avengers goes on for several years and then ends in 10 years and 20 years, you may, you may want to say, this is this niche we're playing to now, or this is that niche. Or you may even return to that, you know? The idea of an all-female X-Men team is never going to run out. You can do... X-Men could continue to be an all-female X-Men team with different female X characters until the end of time, probably. Uh, and especially when you're the X-Men and you have a strong a bench of female characters, as they do. And I would argue that it's probably the strongest female character bench in comics. Um, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. You've got a lot of room to do things like this. So my initial response is, I see the concern, and I think it's a valid one. But I think one of the things that's great about comics as a medium and about these uh, franchises that do go on forever is they're built to go on forever and they're based on these core themes that will resonate 
uh, with audiences over years and years and can always resonate in different ways. So, I mean, I, I might worry about burning out writers that might write the core books because, you know, if Brian Wood writes a female X-Men for, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 issues, he's probably not going to step in and write another X-Men book. Um, so you may be burning out a writer that you might want to see take on different characters. Um, see, that's that's another concern, which I think is very valid, and that is, uh, and I think the company, well, I think Marvel especially is very good at creating a bench and having a bench ready to step in. However, um, I, it's this idea of, I, I mean, I think the writers who are on the X-Men titles right now are settled in for a very long haul, but if you were to, like, if something were to happen, if all of a sudden there were a necessity for a shakeup and you were to look at what's happening with Marvel right now, it'd be very hard to pick out who would be the guys to step in and take up the X-Men franchise in an exciting way. Um, I, I mean, I worried a little bit just because of the idea of like, I agree with you. I think these characters are built to last. I think the concepts are built to withstand the test of time. And I think the idea that it never ends is what makes the medium unique and make, to me makes it fascinating. But at the same time, I think what adds to the longevity of comics is this idea of you have to you have to really be careful about preserving that longevity, preserving that evergreen kind of quality to them, and that means measurable changes that um, can eventually be worked back to a more recognizable form. And when you have three or four different books burning through the types of stories you can tell at the same time. It, it really just makes the job of the next guy all that much harder, uh, especially with the idea of like, so, so say a title of, okay, Daredevil, I think would be a great example of this. You had a very long time of Daredevil uh, having a very grim kind of gritty noir feel under uh, Bendis first and then Brubaker, and then you have Wade come in and relaunch the book with a very more fun kind of swashbuckling uh, humor uh, adventure book kind of feel to it, which is which is great, and it's completely different. It was a tremendous tonal shift, and it was, I think, just what we needed to kind of um, get back on, reinvest interest in the book after maybe fans had had enough of, like, needing a big, stiff drink after, like, reading an issue of Daredevil and just being like, oh, God, his life can't get any worse. Uh, and who maybe have been a little bit tired of, like, feeling just... Um, I mean, the, the stories were amazing, but, like, you kind of felt awful after reading them just because, like, it was just, like, how much more shit can this guy be put through? I actually um, think Daredevil's a great point for, for what we're talking about for exactly that reason. Um, in that Daredevil, for a while, was a book that was all about, like, how much worse can Matt Murdock's life get? Yeah. How, mu how many more awful things can happen to him? And that sort of storyline is not built to last. Because the answer is, like, it can only get so much worse. Yeah, but but the point I'm trying to make here is, like, say you had had multiple Daredevil titles, and you had another book that maybe wasn't as fun as Wade's book is, but another book that was, like, less about the grim, gritty crime feel of Daredevil, and more of, like, a adventure uh, superhero Daredevil at the same time. What would the core title... What would the options of the next story of the core title have been to kind of like change the status quo and go in a different direction. If that, if you already had sort of something of every flavor for the fans, as you maybe have with the Avengers cells right now. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's actually an interesting point because right. If you're, if you've got every flavor, you know, if you've got all 32 of your flavors, as Baskin Robbins, then it's like, well, what do I do next? 
Exactly, um, yeah. So, like, what does the guy after Hickman do when you already have, like, the Espionage Avengers team, the Mutants Fusion X Avengers team, the Young Avengers team, the Battle to the Death on an Island Avengers team that actually is a book they have? Yes, um, and, and that you keep trying to sell me on and I keep refusing to believe you on. That's a different conversation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I think that's definitely a valid point as well. Um, although I wonder how much that has to do with the the premises of the books. For example, I I think the Avengers as a concept is uh, everlasting, but I also think it's very simple. Um, and it's interesting. Um, you, I, I would say, uh, not to not to make it put it in political terms, but by by your very nature, having been in the comics uh, reading fandom much longer than I are, taking the more conservative position in that you think there's a status quo that needs to be maintained in these books. For me, one of the most electric things that I've seen as a comics reader for the last uh, about two years is the X-Universe and how it's been completely upended several times in the last... I've caught up on the last decade's worth of X-Comics over the last two years. Um, and the way it's been completely upended over the last maybe five years, and the premise has changed two or three times, and it's been telling what I think amounts to one really long story without resetting the status quo to what we're used to, and just seems to keep going further and further afield and changing the landscape, that's electric and really exciting for me. Um, I do see how maybe five or ten years down the line, it might hurt the title as a whole, and I see what you're saying there. But to me, the idea of being able to completely upend the premise is, is invigorating. Um, Avengers, I think, is harder to, to upend, though, right? Because... Correct me if I'm wrong here. Maybe there's uh, a thematic depth at the core of Avengers that I miss out on, uh, but it seems mostly to be like a team of good guys fighting bad guys. Um, and I mean, I think the core of the Avengers title is always going to be making, the, building the team and developing team dynamics and figuring out how to work together with a very different group of people. Uh, and in that way, you can do that forever. But um, I think if something like Avengers is more susceptible to the sort of thing we were talking about with Daredevil in terms of if they've built every type of team, and if those books keep going with like every type of conceivable team, it's harder to come up with a new Avengers book. Whereas I think X-Men, so long as you have characters who are mutants, who are, you know, estranged from humanity to a certain extent, and dealing with their feelings toward that, dealing with their, their powers and how to use them, I think you can do a lot more permutations of that without burning it out. Um, do you think that's right, or do you think I'm not giving the Avengers enough credit for uh, its thematic core? No, I, I think you're pretty much right on the mark. And don't get me wrong, I, I, I don't think that... I, I am all for taking risks. I'm all for upending the status quo and changing things in big, big, dramatic ways. I, I think what the point I'm trying to make is um, a little more similar to what we were just talking about with, like, um, when you're... It is, when I'm talking about preserving things, like making sure that the run is going to be in a good place for the next guy it's again this idea of like if you already have so so say like right now we're in an age where we've got hickman's avengers which is this big huge scope sort of thing and the idea is what if the avengers got big to the point of they're protecting the entire world in a way that they i mean they always did but like in a way that they're more of like a network of global heroes protecting this world not only the world but the universe as a whole and it seems to be the direction where hickman is going it would seem to me that for if I was called up to be like the next guy to follow up that run and I want to do something different, my first approach would be sort of like, okay, maybe now it's time to like take more of a back-to-basics approach, refocus things, like go down to a little bit more of a core team, like bring back the family vibe of things. 
But you already have that title in Avengers Assemble. So you're not really dramatically reinventing the wheel. You're almost just more of like shuffling what kind of tone to expect from which title. And another problem I see with having so many different books running simultaneously is this idea of um, the, the bench of villains that each of these heroes have is deep. It's really, really deep, but the established villains tend to stick around much longer than the new creations. And when you have multiple titles with multiple plot lines going at once, the villains tend to bounce from title to title, and it's almost like they're sort of losing the effectiveness that they have in the sense of that they're showing up a lot more often, if that makes sense. That definitely does make sense, because I think you get a lot of impact from, uh, say, the Joker showing up in Batman that is lost a little bit if the Joker shows up in Batman once a month in one of the titles. Yeah, I, I think that's another problem to be had from the multiple titles. Like, I think I think having multiple titles within each franchise, multiple titles like about a core concept like Batman, like Avengers, is very good for comics in the short term. Because you, if you're a fan of this character or this idea, but you're not a fan of a particular writer or a particular story direction, that's fine. Because chances are there is going to be a book about your favorite characters that you can buy and you can enjoy. There's just so many options out there right now that if you're a Batman fan, I think you'll be hard-pressed not to find a Batman book that you like. And I was just going to bring that up. Exactly. Yeah, go ahead. And, but at the same... And, and so it's good for the fans. It's good for the market. And I think it's good for... Um, the creators who really, really want to work on these titles, but maybe would have had to wait their turn for years for like the current writer like finish up their run. Who knows what would have happened down the line? I think it's it's a sort of thing that might we might only see the problems of maybe in about five, maybe ten years, and it, it's sort of like a short term versus long term problem. And the short term, it's also good for the market because you know if Avengers sells well, then other books called Avengers are going to sell well. But that has an unintended consequence, too, that I want to talk about in a minute. But I think you had a point that I want—I don't want to jump over. Oh, no, yeah. Um, I think Batman is actually a very good example of, of what you've been talking about in that there are, I think, I think there are four, uh, if I, or at least I'm reading four. Five. Uh, five, yeah, you're right. I, I was reading Batman Incorporated. Five Batman titles uh, that are about Batman. You know, there's even more if you go to the Bat family. But there are five Batman books right now. Yeah. Um, and I think while... Two of them have been terrible for most of, of the New 52. We're actually in a run right now where I would say every one is worth reading if you want a particular Batman experience out of your reading. Um, I read all of them because I'm crazy. Uh, and I, <laughs> like, I freely admit that when it comes to Batman, I'm insane. Like I read all of Detective Comics, uh, comics when Tony Daniels was writing it. When it was terrible. I read Batman the Dark Knight. I stopped reading for a little while, but every time a new writer came on, I was like, eh, I'll give it a try again. And I'm reading that book now, even though it's sort of hit or miss. Um... But I think each of the books approaches Batman in a different way and has a different feeling to it, which is exactly what you're talking about, I think, in that, like, it's great for me right now and that, like, Scott Snyder brings me, like, the the really scary Batman and he's doing, like, epic run after epic uh, story. Um, and he's giving me, I think, you know, I think he's the best Batman book on the stands right now in a landslide. And I think I would, uh, everyone would agree with me on that for the most part. Um, but... I also think that you've seen John Lehman come in and start doing something really interesting on Detective Comics and building his own Batman story and his own style of Batman story there um, that has taken that book from something that I was just barely putting up with every month to 
one of my favorite books on the stands right now. It's uh, become, you know, and it's become very much its own thing. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that I don't know that can happen if you're only doing one title. So I, I, while I agree with you uh, that it's perhaps worrisome in the long term, I, I just can't help but think, imagine uh, if it's not Scott Snyder, imagine if insert your least favorite comics writer here who's been given the reins to Batman and is settling in for the long haul. Um, as a Batman fan, if I don't have these other options, what do I do? I just read a book that I hate for five or six years so the guy gives up on it? Um, now, if you're less crazy than me and you only want to read one Batman book, you say, oh, the guy who took over Batman is someone I have always hated and I don't want to read ever. Um, I'm going to go over to Detective Comics. Uh, that's not working for me. Maybe Batman and the Dark Knight will do something for me. No, uh, not really. Maybe Batman and Robin's got something interesting, or maybe Batman Incorporated right now. Um, and I think each of those books has its own tone, has its own feel, and with five options on the stand, you will find something that will be the Batman you want to read. Yeah, and it's... I, I think that's a very smart position on the side of the company, but I also think there might be a more happy medium to be found. I, oh, I, I think maybe, that's definitely true. Yeah, maybe Batman and X-Men are a little bit closer to the model I think the company should be pursuing. Uh, I mean, if we're, we're not... I, I, I'd completely forgotten about Astonishing X-Men, to be honest with you, so technically there's five, like, All right, that's titles. still a yeah. book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone forgets about I stopped reading it when Whedon left, and I've never looked back. Yeah, that's a good choice. And really, that's not fair, because I read I read Whedon's in a giant uh, collector's edition. That was actually the first superhero comic I ever read a couple years ago, and that's what started this whole train of rolling for me. Um, but I never read anything after it. I think I might have read one of Warren Ellis's arcs and then gone, nope, I'm out of here. Um, but I think we've talked about this before, and I am the, the king of saying this whenever a new book is announced. Um, yeah. And sometimes you agree with me and sometimes you don't, is what's the premise here? Like, does this book offer something that no other book in the franchise is offering? No, um, I totally agree with you about that. I, I, I definitely think that that's always should be a core question that's asked whenever a new book is launched. And I think for the most part, um, X-Men does a really great job of that right now. I think better than most of the franchises out there, with the exception of Astonishing X-Men. I don't know why that yeah. book needs to exist. There's some dead um, weight, but I think they do a very good job And that I'm reading, uh, if I keep reading X-Men, what, I'm reading four or five different X-Books, probably? I guess four? Yeah. Um, and they all offer me something different, and I like them all every month. Um, but, but the point I wanted to make a minute ago was, when you have, like, say four or five X-Men books, or... Uh, I'm going to use Marvel for this example because I don't think DC has this big a problem right now. Um, so when, when you when you have a bunch of really great X-Men books, because I think the majority of them are amazing right now. Like, I think I'm reading four of the five main ones, just, just as you are, and all of them are great. They are. I'm reading a whole bunch of the Avengers titles because a lot, a lot of them are really, really good right now. I love Avengers, New Avengers... Um, Young Avengers, like it, it's all really, really great stuff. And but, I'll plug again a book that I, I'm. It's a sort of a bubble book for me, but I think is maybe going to get good. Is Secret Avengers? Um, not great right now, but definitely something to watch because it may get there. What What I was so when you have all those great books that are this great, and like you're an Avengers fan, it's a great time to be an Avengers fan. But um, I, I think the danger you get into is like there, there's a lot of demands on your money at this point as a fan. Mm -hmm. And then you have some of the smaller catalog titles, like, and this is a title that I will plug to the end of the day, because, like, honestly, I'm really worried about it, is uh, Captain Marvel by Kelly Sue DeConnick, which has just been 
from the start a very um a a great pulpish adventure kind of book uh, and really sold me on the character of Carol Danvers in a way that uh, eight years of Bendis's Avengers as as good as it tried to never could and really made me love a character that I was always just very kind of blase about for the most of my time reading about her and um, has also really just was a showcase for a lot of very non-traditional Marvel artists and it looks completely different than anything else Marvel has going for it right now but it's it's a book that kind of has always sort of flown under the radar and when it's competing with because you know as an Avengers character she's probably competing the, the book is probably competing with uh, that kind of audience so when you have so many more big name Avengers titles a smaller, less high-profile book like Captain Marvel can more easily be lost in the shuffle, especially when the fans' money is divided in so many different directions. Which right, and if, I mean, is, if you're buying three Avengers books, you're buying Avengers and, and uh, New Avengers, and you know maybe one of the other books that has Avengers slapped on it, and then Captain yeah. Marvel goes goes by the wayside. Yeah, which is which which is a real shame because like a lot of. I think really, really high. I think a lot of my favorite titles of the past decade have been smaller titles from the big two, which are which were for a small amount of time the little book that could, but eventually just lose out in the sales to like the bigger titles. And maybe that's just inevitable. But I think saturating the marketplaces with the titles that the companies know will sell also does not help the long term success of those books. I mean, I think, I, I think it's a necessary evil, maybe to an extent, but at the same time, it's like maybe there's a reason why these books are failing as fast as they do. Oh yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, but I think that's always going to be the case, and I think uh, as the giant pop culture geeks that we are, we tend to always love the underdog because the underdog is out of the spotlight and can do something slightly different. Um, yeah. And I think your Captain Marvels, your to to shed a tear for uh, two books that we lost last year, your Defenders, your Avengers Academies. Um, yeah. The books that fewer people are reading are allowed to do the weirder stuff, and that makes them more interesting, especially if you do, as you and I do, read a whole lot of comics. The things that might pop out to you are like, well, I've seen this story in five books this month, but Captain Marvel is doing something new. Um and I think it is those books are always going to have a struggle because if you're not buying a bunch of books, if you're buying one or two, you probably don't care as much about the fact that it's doing something different than everything else. You care about what you want out of a comic book. Um, and I think it's harder to sell people people on the smaller titles. Um, for example, I wish Sam were here for this conversation, if only because Sam buys only Scott Snyder's Batman every month. Yeah. Um, and I imagine someone like Sam might love something like Captain Marvel, but chances of him seeking out Captain Marvel off the stands, you know, unless you and I were to cajole him into doing it, are very, very small. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think I think that's always going to be a struggle, uh, but I, I agree with you completely that throwing out seven or eight or however many we said there are Avengers titles um, doesn't help a book that is associated with the Avengers like Captain Marvel, and it doesn't help a fan who wants to keep reading Captain Marvel but also wants to stay on the cutting edge of comics. Yeah. I, I think that I think I, I don't think there's a good answer here, except for maybe finding a little bit more of a happy medium in that idea of what you were saying earlier is when a new book is launched, like, do we really need this book? And to, to be honest with you, like, I, I'm not sure that we need Mighty Avengers as a book. Um, I, I think uh, there are enough 
Avengers flavors as is. I, I think the premise, I, I think it's a mini series. I don't think it's a book. Um, yeah, I, 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 I like the idea of a more diverse Avengers squad, but why not just make that the main team? Like, why not just add more characters of color right. and like gender into the main Avengers title? I, I don't need the, I don't, I don't know that we need a whole separate book for that. I, and I mean, I think the Marvel announcement did a very good job of trying to say, like, we're not trying to ghettoize these characters. But to me, yeah. it sort of stinks of that. It's like, well, we can't really do a diverse team in Avengers, so why don't we make an all-diverse team over here in this book? Um, yeah. Just like the all-women team in, in X-Men number one, which I think did actually an excellent job of not being gimmicky in that way and making the story work, which Mighty Avengers may as well. Um, but sure, I'm but, sure like, I'm all for an all-female like, X-Men. Oh, I don't ahead. know that we need um, X-Men either. I mean, like, yeah, it was a great first issue, and yeah, it's it's cool to, like, showcase the female X-Men. But at the same time, it's like, I, I don't know why the story being told, that like, the premise, why that book needs to be its own separate title as opposed to, like, why isn't this a story that could be told in Wolverine and the X-Men? Right, and I, no, I completely agree with that. Uh, my what's the premise question, I read X-Men number one, which I think we agree was a very good first issue, and go, why does this book need to exist except for the gimmick of all-female X-Men? Which, yeah. the X-Men, like we said, has a great deep bench of female characters who can be showcased in plenty of other books very well, I think, and have been. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to ghettoize all the X-Women in one book and say, like, well, they can only really get attention over here because we only want people who really want the women to go here. Or, like, well, I guess people of color want to see superheroes of color, so we'll give them a book full of those. It just... As much as Marvel has, like I said, done a good job of trying to make it clear that's not the intent, and they're just trying to make more diversity in the line, it still feels a bit like ghettoizing to me to throw all the ladies in one book, all the people of color in one book, and you know leave the rest of comics to the uh, male white male nerds. Uh, it's just that's not the the what I like to get out of uh, the idea yeah. of a new book launching, and that is what I get out of X Men and Mighty Avengers. And when you have as many uh, Avengers books as you have right now. I have Avengers fatigue before I even read Mighty Avengers and the new Avengers AI. <laughs> and I will read both of those first issues, and I'll probably read a first arc if they're not terrible. But yeah. I'm reading a lot of Avengers books already, and do I, like, I, I can only care about so much Avengers. My Batman, well, seems to be limitless, but everything else... Like, <laughs> everything else, on the other hand. I have, yeah, I have a point at which it's like, I don't need any more Avengers books. Yeah. I, all of my, like... Avengers team dynamic building is is done. Um, like I've I've got that satisfied in various flavors, and I'm happy. Um, and I feel like we might be at the saturation point right now because I don't like before I can even get excited about the idea of these books. And you know, Luke Cage is a character I love, um, and I think having him at the center of a book again, cool. Um, before I can even get up uh, excitement about that, I'm already like, ugh, another Avengers book, and that is yeah. not what Marvel wants. I. It, and specifically towards Luke Cage, and this is kind of a sidebar, I think, I, I mean, I was really hoping for the next time we were going to see him was in the long-promised Brian Michael Bendis, Mike Diodato, Heroes for Hire relaunch, because that's been teased for over two years now, and I just really want to see that book. Uh, Me too, but then Bendis is so wrapped up in other things right now. Oh, I'm sure he has a time. Like, they, there's... Bendis can always write another book. There's not. There's no limit to the amount of titles. I actually think write. that Brian Michael Bendis might be a computer program invented by Marvel in like the the late '90s, and it's just been running and pumping out comic scripts for like 15 years now. Because that man writes so many books, it's insane. It's just like somebody goes into the Brian Michael Bendis room and plugs in like these are the characters, and it's like here are 162 issues. 
I, I, I think you might want to uh, change locations for the next couple of days because I think a few men from Marvel might be coming <laughs> to find you. Yeah, that's, I've, you, uh, I've revealed their their secret now, and it's yeah. it's a problem. Uh, I think you're a little too close to the truth. We should probably wrap this up. So, uh, any last thoughts on this before we uh, shut down this show and let our listeners get back to their lives because they are all changed as long as this podcast is going on. I I think this is the kind of thing where like I I think there's no right or wrong answer to this at least now. I think right now having that sort of bench diversity in the franchise is a good thing but that doesn't stop me from maybe still being a little bit worried about what we might see down the line i hope i'm completely off base here uh because like comics have been in a great state for the past 10 years like i i think um based on when i started reading comics and um just very shortly after i started reading comics comics got dramatically better and it just kept getting better from there and i mean it, it was like a drastic upswing of how much better they got and uh, I'm just worried of exhausting this kind of creativity and this kind of um, wellspring of um, energy towards like just like trying new concepts, doing new and exciting things. Uh, and just like, I-, I hope they're not running these ideas into the ground by running so many titles at the same time. And I, I think maybe they aren't. I, I think maybe you're right in that they these characters are built to last, but at the same time, it's something that only time's going to tell because I don't think we've ever seen a case like this before where you had nine different Avengers books going at the same time. Like, I, I don't think we've even seen that with Batman, like one of the most prolific characters ever. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think, I think you hit the nail on the head uh, when you said it's all about the happy medium. Um, I think the, the key to uh, finding the success between having every book on the stand, say Avengers and having one Avengers book is to figure out what are the different types of stories we can be telling? What makes this book vital right now? Um, and I think right now is as much a part of it as vital in terms of like, if we have a writer who's going to do a great secret Avengers story right now, that makes that book vital, but we don't necessarily always need to have secret Avengers. Um, and I think as long as you've got a strong stable of people writing strong Avenger stories, you're going to be fine until someone says, why don't we give all the robots an Avenger story like we're going to see next month? Um, and I go, really? All the robots? Yeah. Although, who knows, in six months I may be saying, Avengers AI is the greatest book that's ever been written. It could, um, it could be. It's Yeah, it, you, never, you know. never know. But I think it's all about the happy medium, and it's all about making sure you're publishing books that are essential in addition to just having a name that you know is going to sell. Um, so that's how I would leap off. Yeah, I, I think that's a great place to cap the conversation. And with that, um, we're going to also cap the show. Before we do, we, of course, have to announce the Rachel Tardif Memorial Award for Best Performance in the Week. Um, this one, I think, was also fairly easy. Uh, I, send, I feel like I say this every week, but easy decision for, for us to make. Uh, the tabulations are complete. And we'd like to say congratulations to Michelle Fairley, who is winning the uh, Best Performance in the Week, really for her performance last week, since she wasn't in anything this week. But for the season as a whole, um, I think she deserved the shout-out. I think we talked about her a lot this week and how great she's been. Uh, so congratulations, Michelle Fairley. Come on down to the offices to get your trophy and small cash prize. Uh, with that, we will bid you adieu. We'll be back next week with more uh, fun pop culture tomfoolery. Uh, Until then, have a good week. Bye-bye.
Bye.